Daniel chapter 4. What a marvelous chapter. You know, <clears throat> I've never taught through the book of Daniel before, and it's like each time I come to a new chapter, I feel like, well, this is like one of the best chapters I've ever read in my life, you know. <laughs> and this is such a marvelous passage in the book of Daniel. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is this on center stage. Last time, we will hear from him and uh, see events that had uh, come into his life. And uh, in order to understand this passage, of course, it needs to be understood in the context of all that has gone before. The book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God. That is its overarching theme. God is in control. So in verse 2 or 3 of chapter 1, it says that the reason why the Jewish people were taken captive by the Babylonians was because God so ordained it to be. Nothing happens apart from God's will and God's purposes. And this purpose was to chastise, to discipline his people Israel, to bring them to a greater point of holiness than they were before. And so he permitted the Babylonians to come and to take captive the southern kingdom of Judah and to bring them into Babylon. And that for 70 years. We're told that Daniel and his companions particularly, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in verse 8 of chapter 1 said they were determined that they would not defile themselves. Though in a foreign country, though under a foreign culture, though there were gods galore among the Babylonians, they would not find themselves bowing to anyone but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they've determined that they would not be defiled in this foreign land. Remember, these are young people. These are individuals who are no older than 15 to 18 years old. And they are committing themselves to walk faithfully before the Lord in this foreign, ungodly culture in Babylon. In chapter 2, we find that after their wonderful training, that they are placed with the magicians and the counselors and the astrologers who are to give personal counseling to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he has a dream. He asks his counselors to tell him what the dream is and its interpretation, but they're not able to do that. And so he commissions that all of them are to be destroyed. Daniel steps forward. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar that his God can reveal to King Nebuchadnezzar not only what the dream was, but what it means. And so Daniel told him that he had dreamed of an image, a statue, that was enormous. It was brilliant and it was bright. And it was made of four different metals, gold, silver, bronze, or brass, and iron. And then the feet and toes made of partly iron and partly clay. Daniel is told what those metals symbolize. He told Nebuchadnezzar that those metals symbolize different kingdoms that will arise until Messiah's kingdom will dawn. He said, you, O king, are the head of gold. And thus the head of gold was representative of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom he represented, Babylon. To be followed by the Greeks, to be followed, excuse me, by the media Persian Empire, to be followed by the Greeks and then by the Romans. Ultimately, a rock, which is symbolic and reflective of the Messiah himself, would appear. And this rock cut out without hands. That is, a divine being that will have no human origins. 
would appear and would strike the toes made of partly iron and partly clay, which would cause all the kingdoms of the world to fall down and to crumble. As it crumbles, it's turned into dust like the chaff of the wind, uh, chaff blown by the wind, and then the mountain and the rock, or the rock, the mountain from which the rock was hewn, grows into a huge mountain and fills the earth. And thus, Messiah's kingdom will be the final kingdom of all kingdoms that will bring to an end the kingdoms of the world, and Messiah will reign. In chapter 3, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar did not like, we're not told this specifically, but it appears that Nebuchadnezzar did not like this dream very much or its meaning. Because it suggested, it didn't just suggest, it stated that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would one day come to an end. And he would not want to accept that. So to symbolize his rejection of this dream, he builds a statue 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, all of gold, indicating that his kingdom would never end from head to foot. And Daniel's companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, would not bow to that statue as Nebuchadnezzar commanded all the inhabitants of Babylon to do. As a result, Nebuchadnezzar said, these three men will die. And thus he had these furnaces stoked. And those furnaces were just uh, built up to an incredible heat. So much so that when the guards opened the doors to that furnace to throw these three companions in, they are killed by the intensity of the heat. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are thrown into the furnace. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks in, he sees not three, but four. And not only are there three, but four, but they are also standing there talking. And it's as if they're not being harmed at all. Nebuchadnezzar tells them to come out of the furnace. The three do. And their hair is unsinged. Their clothes are not burned. And they are fine. And Nebuchadnezzar is shocked. And he gives praise to God for what he has seen. This is the second time that he's praised Nebuchadnezzar. And as I shared last week, though he praised God, though Nebuchadnezzar had praised God, his praise was not genuine. I had suggested that he had experienced a conversion, a turning of his heart, or I should say a turning of his mind, his attitude toward the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he had no true conviction about his statements. He had an affirmation about God, but he had no affection, love, devotion toward him. He had recognized him as such, but he had not repented of his sin. So all of this was merely surface reactions on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Until we get to chapter 4. It is here that Nebuchadnezzar will now have a genuine turning of his heart. To the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I love that song that we just sang. That he is mighty to save. Because there is no other character in scripture where this is as blatant and clear as in this chapter. 
how mighty God is to save. If you think that your life is so horrible and so miserable that God could never do anything with it, you need to read this chapter. Because though Nebuchadnezzar was very successful, and though he was very powerful, his life was coming to an end. And his life was coming unhinged. What he was about to experience was a transformation that God desires all of us to experience. That we would know him, and thus our lives would be made right. Take a look at chapter 4. It says that King Nebuchadnezzar issues a proclamation. This is stunning because the chapter opens and closes with Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement of the true God. He doesn't just do this as a statement. He does this as a declaration, a proclamation. We might say a decree before all of humanity. And he says to the peoples, nations, men of every tongue who live in all the world. Notice what he says. May you prosper. Now on the outset, this may not strike us very significantly. But turn over in chapter 4 to verse 27. Daniel, after he interprets the dream, which we'll see in a moment, that Nebuchadnezzar has once again. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that if he would take some steps, it might be possible for the judgment that's about to fall to be averted. And look what he tells him to do. He says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Renounce your wickedness. Here it is. By being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And look how he opens this chapter or his decree. He says, may you prosper greatly. We get the impression that the change that has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's life was not merely academic, but it has now transformed him so much so that he's wishing the prosperity of others and not only himself. And Daniel told him that he could demonstrate that he has truly come to know God if he would stop oppressing his people and rather using the wealth of his kingdom to benefit his people. We're not told whether he does that or not, but it, is, it is, seems to be so. Because his wish for his kingdom is not that they would bow down and worship him or even the gods of Babylon. Not that they would be more faithful subjects to him, but that they might prosper. Which is what Daniel said he ought to do. This was a man of great cruelty. He was a man that exacted much from his people. But look what he says now. It's like so strange. It's like, you know, a guy that's sort of... Uh, Edward had to say this morning. When we come, we should come because we are joyful to tell you about God. It is my joy to tell you about the true God. When we come, we should be thinking, I want to come to joyously and out of pleasure and gratitude make known our God. 
And therefore, we want to sing out loudly because it's our pleasure to make known There are other things I could draw our attention to, but I cannot help but be moved by Nebuchadnezzar, a busy man, the emperor of his kingdom, and yet he says, it is my pleasure, my joy, my delight to tell you of the signs and wonders God has wrought. This throws us back to Exodus, doesn't it? But Nebuchadnezzar is not thinking about Exodus. I don't even know what he's thinking about. I don't think he's thinking about Daniel's ability to both interpret and state what the dream is. Although those are incredible signs and wonders. I think Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about how God changed him. And do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Daniel doesn't want to tell him. Daniel responds, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. You have to be moved by Daniel's love and concern for Nebuchadnezzar. But keep in mind, he's in exile. Keep in mind, this is his enemy. This is the one that took him captive. Yet look at his concern for Nebuchadnezzar. Oftentimes we see others as our enemies. God sees them as individuals who are in need of him. Daniel saw Nebuchadnezzar that way. He saw Nebuchadnezzar as one who was in need of his God. And these expressions denote that he loved Nebuchadnezzar. He served Nebuchadnezzar faithfully. He gave the interpretations accurately. He was his right-hand man, as it were. And he was a faithful servant to the enemy of Israel. I mean, this is amazing. Why? Because ultimately, God serves. You are going to experience a transformation where you are going to become like the beast's of the field that the tree had once protected, you had once protected, your kingdom had once provided for, you are going to become like those beasts without protection. And you are going to be subjected to the elements around you. And this for a period of seven times, whether it's seven years, seven months, seven days, we really don't know. Most understand it as seven years, but we can't be dogmatic. Now, why did this come about? Why was God about to judge Nebuchadnezzar? There are many sins for which God judges. No sin is good, and we know that. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through his son whom he has provided. God judges all sin. But I must say there is a sin about which God is particularly concerned and one about which he responds to very quickly and very significantly. He does so with Nebuchadnezzar. Take a look at verse 28. Twelve months, 29. Twelve months later, a year later after the dream, so evidently God has given some time for Nebuchadnezzar to respond to Daniel's advice a year, but he didn't. And so in verse 29, 12 months later, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, 
Is not this the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That's the problem. And the sin that God will judge is pride. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is exhibiting. And God acts very decisively with regard to it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is on the royal palace. I don't know if you know much about the Babylonian Empire, but let me just tell you that the city of Babylon and the empire of the Babylonians was enormous and quite beautiful in its scope. Nebuchadnezzar was married to a median woman. So she was from the area of what is today now known as Iran. And as you know, Iran has areas that are mountainous and green. But Babylon is in Iraq. And Iraq is flat, sandy, and dusty. She was not happy in the Babylonian palace because it was so bleak and depressing to her and so flat. So Nebuchadnezzar, because he loved his wife so much, wanted to provide a place where she would be happy. Now you have to understand the temples in Babylon are known as ziggurats. Ziggurats are step pyramids. And they are marvelous structures and some still stand today. They are made out of dry mud, bricks. Bricks work pretty well in the desert because they're just, well, dried mud that's put out in the sun to bake. When it rains, of course, mud bricks turn to mud and they can fall apart. So the Babylonian engineers came up with all kinds of means to ensure that these mud bricks would not crumble when it rained. Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt 12 different temples in Babylon. If you see some of the photographs today, you can go online and see them. They, you can see them for miles. They're not quite as large as the Egyptian pyramids, but they stand significantly on the Babylonian terrain or the Iraqi terrain. They took reeds and they took branches that, of trees and all that would grow along the Tigris-Euphrates rivers and they would insert them between certain layers of the mud bricks that were layered. Straw gave the mud ability to, to uh, consist and then they put it out in the sun. Some of them were, dry, were baked in ovens. Those bricks could withstand water. So when they were fired in the kilns, those bricks were used on the roofs so that when the rain would descend, though minimally in those regions, but when the rain would descend, they would just run off of those fire-kilned mud bricks. They also built gutters along the sides of these temples so that they're little cutouts and the water would then roll down these sides so it wouldn't roll through, float all around the whole uh, structure, but just down through these little channels that were also fired mud bricks that could resist the water. And then it was led away through troughs away from the foundation. Really quite ingenious and some of them still stand today, thousands of years old. Nebuchadnezzar's 
palace and city were built out of mud bricks. But you need to know the walls around the city of Babylon was 56 miles in circumference. So how far is that from here? Is that from here to Orange County somewhere? If we were on the East Coast, I would say, well, that's from Annapolis to Baltimore and back because it's 25 miles to Baltimore. This is about 56, 60 miles. They were 80 feet thick were the walls around Babylon. Four dual-horsed chariots could actually just be led around the top of these walls. They were 320 feet high. That's, I don't know, a shot to right field at Dodger Stadium or something. I don't know how long the line is at Dodger Stadium, 320, something like that. This is a massive place. And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he took shrubbery and trees that grew along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. He had them planted throughout his kingdom. There's not a lot of water in Iraq. He had these trees and shrubbery and bushes and vines that would hang over. They were not hanging like off of ropes or cables, but they hung over the walls of Babylon. They were hanging over these walls and they would be growing throughout all of these different terraced temples and structures. And what happened was when you looked at it from a distance, it looked like you were looking at a mountain of shrubbery like you would see in Iraq or like you might see as you drive north on the 101. The shrubbery also served to cool the palace and some of the grounds around it so that when she went out, it would be cool, it would be green, and it would be lush and lovely. The real genius of it was how they, got to, how they were able to water it. They actually had slaves that had these buckets that were attached to chains that were on wheels that would dip water into, slaves would take water from the Euphrates and it would flow to the base around the outskirts of Babylon and they'd have these wheels that slaves would be turning and these buckets would be going up to the top, filled with water, just keep going up and around, up to the top of the walls and put into certain areas that it would then trickle down and flow from the top to the bottom to keep the gardens moist and wet so it would continue to grow. They lasted, by the way, until 200 years before the time of Messiah. 400 years those gardens continue to exist. Herodotus and other Greek historians write about them extensively because it is one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. So you can imagine as he does this for his wife, so that she'd be happy. He's walking out and he sees this. Who would not be amazed? Six times, God is referred to as El Elyon, God Most High. We sang about that. Six times. You'll see it in verse 2. 
You'll see it in verse 17. You'll see it in verse 24, 25, 32, and 34. I don't want to read them all there, but you'll see them. And every time, just about every time, I think, it's mentioned. He's mentioned as the God most high who is sovereign and Lord. The first time God is referred to as El Elyon is in Genesis chapter 14. That's when Abraham rescues Lot from those four kings that had, or five kings. I always get them mixed up, who's attacking who and who's carried off Lot. But a series of kings, four or five of them. And Abraham rescues them. As he rescues Lot and the others and he travels back south, he comes through Salem, the ancient name for Jerusalem, the city of peace. And he meets up with Melchizedek. That is Melchizedek. My God is righteous. My king is righteous. Or righteous king. And when he sees Melchizedek, Melchizedek is referred to as the king priest of God most high. And if you look at those verses, I think it's four or five times God in that section or denoting his sovereignty, his rulership over everything. When Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I've done. O morning star, son of the dawn. Lucifer's, O morning star, son of the, of, the, of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, here are the five expressions of his pride. I will ascend to the heavens. Notice the second thing he says. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Not only would he ascend into the heavens, but he will set up his throne above all the angels of God. He says, number three, I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain." Not only will he ascend back, he says, I will ascend into heaven. The thing to me is that Nebuchadnezzar then says, verse 34, At the end of that time, I raised my eyes toward heaven. That's the key to salvation. When our eyes are turned earthward, when our eyes are turned inward, we become like what we look at. And when we look down... We look at the beasts of the field. When we look down, we look at ourselves not as ones made in the image of God, but as creatures who are less than what God has intended us to be, and we become like them. Paul says as much, we've seen it in Romans chapter 1, where it says God gave them over, gave them over, gave them over. Third time, he says, to a reprobate mind. The point is, the more we give ourselves to the things of the world, the more we become like them. The more beastly and the less godly we become. We don't realize it. Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize it. But that's what indeed happened. One of the most profound messages ever given was by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He likens individuals like spiders that are dangling on the end of a web strip in the hands of God. A precarious place because 
We've become in our sin like creatures. Beastly, insect-like was his point. When we turn from God, we need to look up at him that we might become more like him. Many teachers, professors, preachers have done similarly. C.S. Lewis, when he wanted to try to describe the extent to which the Savior went to save us, he said, it is like God becoming a slug in order to sort of envision how different we are from God in our sin. I remember one professor who was lecturing on this and likened us as sinners to rats. And afterwards, there was a question and answer period and one of the people in the audience raised the question and said, you know, I really think that your, your idea of likening us to rats is really overboard and you deserve, and, and we deserve an apology. You should give an apology. And he said, Madam, you're right. I do need to give an apology. It was unproper of me to make that kind of statement. I do apologize to the rats. (laughs) Because he said rats, slugs, and spiders behave as God created them to behave. But when we act like slugs and spiders and rats, we're behaving in a way that God did not create us to behave. He created us to be like Him. And we satisfy ourselves in being like something much less than Him. And we think that we are good. Look at Romans chapter 1. That's Paul's entire point. And the thing about Daniel chapter 4... That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar experiences. He becomes beast-like. And what does he say? It's only when he looked up that his sanity returned. It's only when he put his eyes on God that he could think straight. It's only when he realized he wasn't in control and God is. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And here's the whole point. And and the final words of Nebuchadnezzar. And those who walk in pride is able to humble. Not only is he able to humble, he does humble. We've all been there. Hopefully we've not experienced it to the degree that Nebuchadnezzar has. But most of us have not ascended to the heights that Nebuchadnezzar has either. The final joy of this whole passage is we may not like what Nebuchadnezzar went through, but look where Nebuchadnezzar came to. He came to that point where the Most High God worked a sign and wonder in his life in making him like himself. For Nebuchadnezzar, it took what the text tells us, what he endured. And he does not begrudge it at all. He simply says, God is to be exalted. He does what is right. And he does what is beneficial for us. And so this is a chapter that reminds us whatever we go through, God is in control. He's the most high God. And we can rely upon him. He may take us through some very tough disciplinary times. That is certainly to be so. Lord, we are told, disciplines those whom he loves. But the outcome of that discipline 
is not meant to destroy. It's meant to bring life, restoration, repentance, and being united with him. It's meant to enable us to finally look up so that our sanity might return and that godliness might be the result. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this chapter and for your revelation to us this morning. I pray, Father, that we would be responsive to its truths. May we not delay in coming to you that our sanity might be restored and that discipline might be avoided. Like Daniel gives advice to Nebuchadnezzar, so you give us advice as well. Come unto me, all you are heavy laden, Messiah has said. I will give you rest. May we not delay, but might we come. And in coming, might we find life and find it more abundantly. For it's in Messiah's name we pray.